I've uh, had uh, the privilege over uh, the last year or so to spend a fair bit of time in uh, the book of uh, Philippians, and so I'm excited to begin a a series of sermons with you in this uh, short book. And so you can uh, turn there and keep a finger in the book of Philippians if you're uh, new to the Bible or not as familiar with the Bible, you're going to find it in the last third. It's just a short letter uh, that'll be just a couple pages, uh, but we're going to turn as well to the book of Acts, Acts 16. And uh, as I shared in the pastor's post on Friday, I'm excited to be studying Philippians with you for a, a couple of reasons, um, uh, and I think it'll be a very timely study for us as a church family. I am excited to study the book of Philippians uh, with you because this is a book uh, that points us to the unsurpassing worth of Jesus. Uh, there is, um, it, there's clear, it's just clear as you read through the book of Philippians that Paul is a man with a singular focus. Uh, what he cares most about, what he loves most is Jesus and making sure that Jesus is exalted. So we see uh, Paul in chapter 1, he says, uh, in my living or in my death, what I care is that Jesus is exalted and lifted up, uh, and that's what I rejoice in. And in chapter 2, we've got uh, this beautiful portion, uh, this beautiful hymn uh, in which Paul lays out the example of Christ as the one who lays down his life for the good of others. And, and, uh, and then in chapter 3, we see that Paul says he would count whatever would account to his earthly credit, he would count all of that loss uh, for the sake of one thing. That's knowing Christ and being known by Him and possessing the righteousness that comes in Christ uh, by faith alone. In chapter 4, we see that Jesus uh, is the one in whom we can find peace and comfort and security. So Philippians is a great book, Uh, for stoking our love for Jesus, and we always have need to do that. Uh, But Philippians is also a timely book because it is a book about joy. Uh, It's been called the Epistle of Joy, and it's something, uh, as we think about where we're at and the type of year that 2020 has been, uh, I know that many of us have been uh, feeling a little joy-depleted. And so to look uh, at the book of Galatians, we will see how the Apostle Paul, even though he's in chains and facing trial, and even though the Philippians are facing afflictions of their own and opposition of their own, we'll see how Paul finds joy. And this will help us as as joy-depleted people. It'll help us to see how can we find joy in the midst of our own trials. And Philippians is also a book about Christian relationships, so in this sense, I think it's, it's a timely word for us as well. Uh, in, uh, in Philippi, the church at Philippi, uh, they were facing external opposition, we see in chapter 1. They were also uh, facing some family uh, conflict, as we see in, in chapter 4, so tension in their life together. And so Philippians helps us to see the importance of Christian unity. And how do we maintain Christian unity in the face of of, uh, internal and external pressures? Again, as we think about the moment in which we find ourselves, uh, there are intense cultural and spiritual forces that are pressing in on our life together, Harvest, uh, that would seek to undo the unity which God is pleased by. And so I think Philippians will help us think through how are we going to do family life together? And so I think it's a necessary word. 
Now, before we look at uh, the opening of Philippians today, we need to say something about the background of this book. Uh, Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul, along with Timothy, as we see in Philippians 1.1. And um, it's written to uh, this church in Philippi, to their elders, to their deacons, and to the whole congregation. It would have been read by the church when Paul sent it to them. And Paul and Timothy had a special relationship with uh, the Philippians. Uh, About 10 years, uh, most likely, uh, uh, before this letter was was written, uh, Paul and Timothy had uh, come to Philippi, and there they had started the church there uh, in the region of Macedonia. It would be the first uh, European church that we know of. And so I want to look at Acts 16 uh, and, and read through that with you so that we can understand the background that Paul has uh, with the Philippians. So Acts 16, starting at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And we were going to the as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I just really appreciate that, uh, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowds joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the city and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, if you fast forward 10 years, Paul is in prison again, or he's at least under house arrest. We don't know exactly uh, where he is. It could be Rome, could be Caesarea, could be uh, Ephesus. Uh, But Paul has received some sort of report, most likely, about the Philippians. And so he writes this letter uh, to them, and he sends them by Epaphroditus and Timothy. So today we're going to read Philippians 1, uh, 1 to 11. Uh, So you can turn there, but our focus is going to be uh, primarily on verses 3 to 8. And here in these verses, uh, we're going to see uh, how we can find joy as we see God at work through other believers and at work in other believers. All right, so let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's ask for God's help now. Father in heaven, as we begin uh, this series of studies in the book of Philippians, we pray that you would help us. We are people who need to have our affections stoked for Jesus. We are people who need to find joy in Jesus. And we are people who want to find joy in our life together. So give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to respond. And Lord, might, might we give thanks for this salvation that we have together in Jesus, 
that we're going to talk about today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So one of my uh, favorite Winston uh, Churchill anecdotes uh, has the great uh, British Prime Minister seated uh, at a a, a dinner party, and the guests were discussing the question, if you couldn't be uh, who you are, uh, who would you want to be? And so the distinguished guests uh, go uh, around the table uh, answering questions, and you can imagine what people would say, right? Uh, I want to be the, the King of England or I'd want to be a famous actress, or I would want to be a a celebrated uh, military general, or something like that. Well, Churchill, who was presiding over the gatherings, he was uh, set to answer last, and everyone was anticipating, what would the great Winston Churchill say? Who would he want to be if he could not be Winston Churchill? And so Churchill uh, lifts himself up from his seat, and he's sitting beside his wife, and he answers, if I could not be who I am, I would want to be Lady Churchill's second husband. The way people uh, speak about each other can catch our attention, can it? Think the affectionate and playful answer that Churchill gave about his beloved Clemmy, uh, as he called his wife, uh, was what made this story particularly memorable uh, for me. Churchill was both clever and um, notably tender. And that stands out to us. And so I wonder whether, um, as we read these opening verses to Paul's letter, whether the tender and affectionate tone caught your attention. Paul's letter and this introduction is brimming with warmth and tenderness. Look at verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, I love you with the love of Christ. And that's a a strong statement, but it's a statement that Paul repeats uh, elsewhere in the letter when he speaks of the Philippians as my beloved, those who I love and long for, my joy and my crown. There's no mistaking how Paul feels about these believers. And the love which Paul has for these believers Philippians expresses itself in thanksgiving to God. As Paul is uh, sitting in prison, perhaps chained uh, to Roman guards, when he thinks of Lydia and he thinks of the slave girl and he thinks of, of the Philippian jailer and he thinks of all of those converts who made up this church at Philippi, he's filled with thanksgiving and he prays to God. But he doesn't pray to God Oh, uh, most holy God, I just want to um, sort of thank you for these people. I'm just so glad for them and give them what they stand in need of and amen. All right, some sort of perfunctory prayer. When Paul thinks of the Philippians, he goes, God, I thank you for these believers. I thank you for every one of them. I'm just filled with love as I think about what you are doing in this church. He's just oozing with gladness as he thinks about these Christians. And, and what we, we see here is that Paul does this regularly. He does this in every prayer of his. The Philippians are regularly featured in Paul's prayer as he freely and spontaneously and joyfully thanks God for them with joy. But why does Paul feel this way? He's not just thanking God for the Philippians because they are who they are, uh, as if doesn't matter who they are. His thanksgiving is, is not unconditional. 
Unconditional thanksgiving is meaningless, as if the situation could be entirely different, they could be entirely different, and he would still feel the same way. No. I remember uh, being at a conference about uh, 10 years ago, and there was a, a presentation to New Testament scholar uh, Don Carson, uh, um, appreciating him or giving thanks uh, for his work and his scholarship. And John Piper was uh, part of the presentation, and uh, they gave a, a book dedicated to Carson. And Piper said to Carson, what I want to express to you tonight, Don, is our love for you, which is not unconditional, but gloriously conditioned by your life and your work. Piper was making the point that God had done something in Carson and through Carson that made him particularly worthy of our appreciation. And if Don Carson had been anyone else, or if he had been a different person, we might not be able to enjoy him in the same way. Now, um, when Paul is thinking of the Philippians, he's thinking similarly. It's not an unconditional thanksgiving. He has very specific reasons that he gives thanks. Two reasons that I want to draw your attention to. Paul gives thanks. He finds joy in his fellow believers because of their gospel partnership and because of their gospel security. Their gospel partnership and their gospel security. So the first reason Paul gives this exuberant thanks to God is indicated by our because in verse 5. Paul gives thanks to God for the Philippians because of their partnership, uh, of the partnership which he has with them for the gospel. When Paul came to Philippi, he came proclaiming the gospel, the good news. He came telling the Philippians that they had sinned against a holy God, but that if they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be saved. And God blessed the preaching of Paul's gospel so that a number of them believed and a church, as we read, was formed there. And ever since the Philippians had believed and embraced that message, these Philippians had shown themselves to be committed, to be sold out for the sake of seeing this gospel go out to others. Though they would stay in Philippi, this church partnered with Paul in his gospel mission, as we see in verse 5. This partnership, this word partnership, can also be translated as fellowship, as the King James has it. And in verse 7, this idea of partnership or fellowship uh, is further explained as Paul speaks of the Philippians as being partakers. That's, it has, that's a word that has the same root as fellowship or partners, as being partakers with Paul of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So even as Paul was thrown into prison, even as Paul stood in front of uh, various officials making his case for the gospel, the Philippians didn't abandon Paul, but they stood by him and they supported him and they offered whatever help they could from a distance. And this partnership was a source of sincere joy for Paul. Now, the ESV uses the word partnership, I think, because uh, our word fellowship has been uh, sub substantially weakened. When we think of fellowship, what do we think of? Uh, we think maybe of uh, coffee and small talk, uh, after the service, we've got our fellowship time. Uh, we now tend to use the word fellowship uh, as sort of Christian speak for hanging out or catching up. It makes it seem like a more uh, sanctified thing to do. Right? If we're Christians and we get together to watch the game, okay, we're hanging out. But if we pray before we watch the game, then we're fellowshipping. Okay, so 
honey, I've got to go fellowship with the guys tonight. Right? So when we think of, of fellowship, sometimes we're thinking of it only as our activity as sort of relating together, talking together, getting to know each other. And yet that's not how Paul is using the word here. After all, Paul's in chains. He hasn't been able to, to be with the Philippians or see the Philippians for some time. And yet he speaks of the ongoing fellowship which he has with them. Still, even as he's in chains. So fellowship for Paul needs to mean something more than just socializing over church coffee. When Paul speaks of his fellowship with the Philippians, he has in mind they're being joined together in a common reality and for a common cause. Like two men investing in a business together. Or like nine characters who join together in Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring on a quest, on a mission. Christian fellowship, as Paul understood it here, is more than just talking together. It's working together. Christian fellowship is about standing shoulder to shoulder just as much as it is standing face to face. So it's you and I standing together in a shared commitment for the sake of the gospel. We're invested in seeing the gospel transform us, and we're invested in seeing the gospel go out and transform others. Now, in Paul's case, his fellowship with the Philippians was manifested uh, most obviously in uh, giving, in their financial support of the ministry of Paul and his associates. In Philippians 4, at the end of the letter, Paul makes this clear. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share or to partner or to fellowship uh, in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's where Philippi was, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. So even though the Philippian church was a church that had experienced affliction and extreme poverty, as we see elsewhere, yet Paul tells the Corinthians when he's writing to them that the Philippians overflowed with generosity. They even gave beyond their means and they, they pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to give toward the gospel mission. And so this tangible commitment by the Philippians, this evident investment to be doing whatever they could to see Jesus transform other lives, this, as Paul saw this partnership, it made him radiate with joy in prison. If you want to find joy in the Christian life, Paul shows us that one place we can find joy is in fellowship with other Christians. God had so worked in Paul so that what mattered most to him now as he was a captive to Jesus was the gospel. Paul sees his entire world. He sees his relationships. He sees his work. He sees it all through the lens of the gospel message and the gospel mission. So when Paul thinks of the Philippians, he thinks about them first, uh, first of all in terms of what matters most to him. He thinks about the gospel. How often in church life do we find our joy being robbed by differences in secondary matters? We can find ourselves frustrated because of differences in politics or parenting style, preference or personality. We um, end up sometimes giving more time and more emphasis in our church relationships to these areas of, of secondary importance. 
Now, that's not to say that sometimes there are differences uh, that are important. There are. Sometimes differences do matter. As we saw in, in Galatians, the differences between Paul and Peter. Differences can matter. But if we would find more joy, or we would find more joy if we viewed our relationships in the church, first of all, in terms of what mattered most, the gospel and its message and mission. So do you want to find joy? Do I want to find joy? One of the ways that we can do that is to see our fellow believers in terms of our shared commitment to the gospel. Not in terms of secondary things, not in terms of mask views or political views or whatever else you want to pick. Do you want to find joy? Look around you and see a shared commitment to the gospel. If you're a Christian, you want to find joy, pursue true Christian fellowship by investing in Christ's mission of making disciples of other Christians. Now, this can happen in a number of ways. Like I said, the Philippians' uh, commitment to fellowship was seen most clearly in their financial support, giving cheerfully and sacrificially to Paul's missionary work so that the gospel would be proclaimed. They're saying, with their gifts, we're committed partners to seeing the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. When we give to the offering, as we just did, this is an act of Christian fellowship. As we give together, what we're saying is that we're gladly, we're eagerly wanting to support the gospel ministry that God is doing at Harvest, through Harvest, and outside of Harvest. When we commit in our budget to support things like church planting or giving to our denominations worldwide outreach, we're saying that we are partnered with other Christians and we're in this together. Because we want the gospel to go forward. So for your joy, partner together, fellowship with one another in giving for the sake of the gospel. You can also pursue joy-giving Christian fellowship by ministering with other Christians. If you're not part of a small group now, I would encourage you uh, to find, uh, find a small group. We're, we're, this is a great time to join small groups. Uh, you can contact the church office. We'd be happy to help you get connected with other Christians that you can serve alongside of. Or if you're in a small group, consider how you can support each other in the work of evangelism, praying together for the non-Christians in your life, asking for opportunities uh, to be able to, to speak of Christ in these relationships, find ways to serve together and show the mercy of Christ to your neighborhood. Be on mission together. We right now are... are uh, busy in the process of starting this South Church plant. There's a clearly defined goal here of seeing a church started in the Door Moline uh, Wayland area. So if uh, you're there, serve by setting up chairs and welcoming visitors and participating in community events. But we here in this building, we still have fellowship with these believers as we show our commitment to this work, seeing the gospel go out uh, south of town by supporting it financially, by praying for it, by investing time in it, by sending our pastors and elders there to support it. We're partnered together for the sake of the gospel. Now, given how Paul talks about um, how uh, um, he, he situates here joy-filled, joy-producing fellowship, he situates it in the context of gospel mission. 
And it should come no surprise to us that as we engage in mission together, it'll bring us joy. Think about the times when you've been maybe uh, felt most connected with other believers. Maybe you've been on a, a mission trip with other Christians. Uh, maybe you served together in Backyard Bible Club or Vacation Bible School. Right? There's something about these contexts as we're not just looking in at each other, but we're looking out together at Christ's mi- mission that brings us together and brings us joy. So if you want to taste the joy of Christian fellowship, serve with each other for the advance of the gospel. So, Paul gives us this first reason that he and that we can find joy as we look around us at other believers. We can see the partnership which we have with others in the gospel and for the gospel. And there's a second reason, though, that Paul erupts with thanksgiving as he's sitting there in jail. We see that in verse 6. He's thankful not only because the, the Philippians are committed gospel partners, but he is thankful because uh, they will continue as his secure gospel partners. Elsewhere, as I said, we see in this letter that the Philippian church was facing external opposition, hostility to the gospel. Evidently, after Paul left, things didn't subside for the church. Right? It was continued to be hard for these new converts. They were suffering for the faith. And Paul couldn't come to them. He couldn't sit down with them and put his arm around them and speak a reassuring word to them. He was like a parent who sends their child off to university, hears that they're facing trouble, and he knows, I can't can't go there. And yet Paul gives thanks to God because he has complete confidence that grace begun will be grace completed. It was God who had first planted the seed of grace in these believers We saw this in Acts 16 when Paul speaks to Lydia uh, the gospel and the Lord initiates this work of of grace in Lydia and he opens her heart to the gospel so that she believes. God brought about this conversion of Lydia and the rest of the Philippian believers. This conversion consisted of two parts, of their believing the gospel, believing in Christ, being joined to Christ by faith, but also of repenting of their sin, turning from their old way and and beginning to live for Jesus. This was the start of their Christian life. God had uh, caused them to have a radical break with who they once were. And they're now established in Christ by faith, but they're buffeted by all sorts of opposition and threats. And then there are issues that come up in the church with false teachers and church conflict. And it might have just been tempting to just give up, to lay down, right? As as wave after wave of opposition batters them. You maybe know what that feels like. Maybe in your own life there's been times, maybe you're in one of those times right now where it feels like uh, simply the cost of following Jesus is too great, the struggle is too hard. There's doubts, there's disappointments. There's the problem of pain. There's the agony of belief at times because belief doesn't come easy, it feels. Faith is hard. God seems elusive and distant. There's opposition. There's hostility. There's maybe scorn that you're facing from family and friends. There's conflict with other people. And you feel weak and you feel frail. And these, these feelings are just exposing what is true of us on even our best day. That if it weren't for God on our own, of our own strength, we would abandon Christ altogether. We couldn't hold on. And yet the promise that God never leaves grace half-finished 
is one that he gives to all those who are in Christ. That's what he gives us in verse 6. Paul is convinced that God will finish what he has started. He will complete the work of salvation. And he's convinced of this for good reasons. Think perhaps of the reasons why uh, we leave projects uncompleted. Uh, Some of us are better at finishing tasks than others. But why do we leave uh, jobs unfinished? Well, we change our minds. But God's counsel never changes. What he's planned to do, he will accomplish, Isaiah 46. So if God's got a design to save you, this is fixed forever in his sovereign will. Sometimes we um, give up on a project. We toss it aside. But God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. Sometimes we don't know how to finish the job. But the Lord is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom, Isaiah 28.29. He always knows the best way to accomplish His plans, including your salvation. Sometimes we run out of uh, time and resources. But that can't stop God from finishing His work of grace in you. Because he's the one who sets our times, determines them. He's the Lord over time, uh, Psalm 139.16. And the world and all of its fullness is his, Psalm 50, verse 12. All that's in the world is at his disposal. He doesn't run out of resources. Sometimes we encounter uh, um, obstacles or resistance that we can't overcome. And yet God's power is such that he can do whatever his holy will desires. Job 42.2, the Lord can do all things and no purpose of His can be thwarted. Beloved, there are fewer truths that are more precious than this one. God finishes what He starts. Those He calls to faith, He will bring to glory. And that's a tremendous source of, of personal comfort and personal confidence to us. But notice the context that Paul gives us, uh, gives this promise to us in. Knowing who God is, knowing what God is like. Paul's not looking, first of all, at himself. He's looking out at his gospel partners from afar, and he rejoices and gives thanks because he knows that God is not going to let them, his dear friends, go. Paul's filled with joy and thanksgiving as he applies this truth of God's preserving grace to his fellow believers. God will bring them through every trial. He will sustain them in every affliction. He will ensure that one day they will stand at the day of Jesus Christ, that is, at the day of judgment, and grace will be perfected in them. Just as it would be in Paul, just as it will be in me, and just as it will be in you if you belong to Jesus. The gospel which Paul partnered with the Philippians to proclaim was that there is a way for sinners to be reconciled to to God that we might one day enter into His presence and enjoy Him in His fullness forever and all because of Jesus. And Paul finds joy in knowing that what he and his gospel partners, Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer and their households and this entire church, what they have worked so hard for, what they have given toward, what they have prayed for, all this this work for the gospel together, that one day together they will go and be with the Lord. And together they will take in Jesus in all his glory. 
They're like friends who are serving together in a battle. Think going into World War II and know that though you might be bloodied and bruised, you're going to come out together on the other side and you're going to enjoy victory. It's a remarkable thought, isn't it? To be able to look at another human being, someone who you've sat beside in church, you've served Jesus alongside of, perhaps you've argued a time or two with, and be able to say, what God has started in him or in her, he will bring to completion. And on that day, on the day of Jesus Christ, when God has completed that work in me and in him or her, we're going to stand before Jesus together. And we're going we're gonna to laugh with holy laughter. And we're going to perhaps cry tears of joy. And we're going to say together, he did it. We made it. Isn't this wonderful? I can't believe we're here. Wasn't it all worth it? Paul gives thanks for the grace which he shares in with his Christian co-workers now, but also uh, he gives thanks because he has this confidence that one day he will enjoy the culmination of grace with them. Harvest, all around you today, there are people who are under construction, people who are works in progress. And God has given grace by giving faith, and wherever that work has started, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will get the glory. But we, we can look forward to that now. We can enjoy that. We can see with confidence God's going to bring you through. And we're going to enjoy Jesus one day, perfectly, forever. So as we seek for joy, as our affections are changed by God and set on the gospel, what I want to encourage you to do is to look for joy in other believers. As you partner together, fellowship together for the sake of the gospel, and as you see the certainty of God's grace at work in them. Let's pray. Dear God, you are a generous God and you are the source of all true joy and the source of every good gift and we thank you that in Jesus there is a joy and an enjoyment to be found in our brothers and sisters who we're sitting beside today. Because you are doing a, a work of grace, not only in us as an individual uh, believer, but you are doing a work of grace in other people and all, all around the world. And we can see, Lord, that together we are joined to a common Savior. We're given a common mission that we are supplied and sustained and equipped by a common grace. Lord, help us to be more mindful of what is most important and to delight in the fact that we are laboring together over what matters most. And also, Lord, help us to see the people around us, the people we sing with, the people we pray with, the people we serve with as those in whom you have begun a work of grace that you will bring to completion. That we can have confidence that together we will stand before your throne and enjoy all the fruits of that which we've worked for by your grace. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you uh, please stand with me and sing our song of response?